Good morning, KGF family. Today we're going to look closely at the words from Philippians 4, 8 to 9. And on the surface, they seem pretty cut and dry as believers and following verse 7, which is about the, the peace of God that's guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ, we're to think about virtuous things. Uh, but there's a lot more to it than that. When I was prepping for this sermon, I was thinking, man, this is a, uh, ending a letter with an expansive statement like verses 8 and 9 is a great way to, to end a letter, but it's a really bad way to start a sermon. See, we need to get a bit more specific so that we can see just how these verses land in our own individual lives. Now, this is going to take some work on your part, though, because, like I said, if it's going to be specific and uh, individual, you're going to have to do a lot of work here. Uh, I don't expect that we'll be able to do it all in the course of one Sunday morning. This is a lifelong task that we're being asked to engage in. And after all, on top of all that, we live in a world whose waters are muddied by our own sin and ignorance. So identifying what these virtuous things are can be tricky. Even if, uh, if, if we're even in the habit of identifying them and thinking on them in the first place. So in fact, as I was thinking on this passage, another from Paul came to mind. That's 1 Corinthians chapters 11 to 14. Now in there, Paul is speaking at length about worship. He talks about the Lord's Supper, which we're going to be celebrating today. And he talks about how for now, as we engage with the world and live out our lives of worship, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, uh, a reflection of the way that things are supposed to be. But with Christ's return, we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. Now I love how Eugene Peterson uh, puts those in the message. He says, we don't see things clearly yet. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. And that's how it so often is for us. We're squinting in a fog. We're peering through a mist, trying to discern what is right and pure and lovely, admirable, etc. And we're trying to think on those things so that we can do them too, as verse 9 says. Verse 8 is think, verse 9 is do. But we won't be able to do that perfectly until we stand before Christ in his glory. Until that time, we strive together in our faith. To quote from yet another one of Paul's well-known passages, that this is our true and proper worship, not being conformed to the pattern of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind and offering our bodies, our lived lives as sacrifices to God. And we can't forget about that last part. Renewed minds are for offered bodies, living and practical demonstrations of God's love, truth, justice, honor, admirability, and excellence. So as I'm talking this morning, kids or those of you who are kids at heart, maybe you just learn better with your hands, here's what I want from you. I want you to think of things that are right, things that are good, true, beautiful. 
I want you to think of things that you delight in and are thankful for. Again, these verses, eight and nine, build off of the, of the verses that Pastor Garth preached on last week, and that's all about rejoicing. So you can draw them, you can write them up in a list, whatever you like, and uh, as you make that list or draw that picture, I want you to think about what it is that makes it true or makes it right or makes it pure and lovely and admirable. So draw a picture of what you think is good and excellent, etc., and then think about what is it that makes it good? What is it that makes it excellent? Okay? That's the plan. Now, before we dive in, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning, as we engage with your word, would you give us soft hearts? Father, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your word, your living word, has for us today? God, we thank you that we can have a Bible in our home, a Bible in our hands. Uh, would you help us to take advantage of this great privilege that this uh, nation of ours affords us? And would we hear from you this morning, we pray. Amen. All right. Now, our two short verses appear at the end of a letter where Paul has spent much of his time focusing on the reality and the implications of God revealed in Jesus Christ crucified. He's been focusing on the importance of a Christ-focused and cruciform life. Cruciform is another way of saying cross-shaped, a cross-shaped life. And so when he invokes virtues like justice and honor and purity and loveliness or beauty, they are to be understood as things that God determines to be so. They're not true, for example, in and of themselves. They're not simply generic things. They are true because God has made them true. All truth is God's truth, and the same can be said of justice, beauty, and the like. So if we're to understand them, if we're to think on virtuous things and put them into practice, we need to understand them and the wider world in the context of Jesus Christ. That's really what the word, the Greek word think in our English translations is on about. It means to reckon or to ponder with a view to making sure that the thing that we see, uh, the, that, that, that what we see is really the, um, that they really are and measure them according to what is. So we're testing things. We're seeing, is this what I think it is? And is this true according to our measure? And our measure, of course, is Christ. And in this letter, that is exactly what Paul has been trying to, it's exactly what he's been on about. He's tried to show his friends in Philippi the way things truly are. He's tried to recontextualize his circumstances, as well as their own. So in the latter paragraphs of chapter 1, he's tried to show the, the truth of Jesus Christ uh, and how that revisions his present experience of suffering and imprison, uh, imprisonment, not as something arduous, but as an opportunity for mission. He's even been able to put aside the competitiveness and self-aggrandizement of others, saying, hey, Christ is preached, and because of that, I rejoice. Even in dire circumstances, because Paul acknowledges the truth of Christ, he's able to say, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He knows what the truth is, and it helps him understand his circumstances differently. He can live in them differently. 
and he encourages his friends to have the same approach. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And to see in their own circumstance, which is also marked by suffering, you'll remember, how the fact of God's good work begun in them, how the truth of God revealed in Christ might cause them to revision their current experience. More than that, he encourages them in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Just as God humbled himself, so too should they value others above themselves, looking to the interests of others rather than to their own. Paul calls this whole venture of rethinking the world and putting these transformed thoughts into practice, um, he, he calls this working out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is what verses 8 and 9 are on about. Think on things and do them. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or if you prefer a more modern reading, work out your salvation with deep reverence. And this, of course, should be done with gladness and joy, something that Pastor Garth spoke about last week. He even highlights, Paul even highlights for them how Timothy and Epaphroditus model a life transformed by Christ at the end of chapter 2. So with verses four, uh, sorry, with chapter four, verses eight to nine, Paul is not simply telling people to dwell on truth and honor and justice and purity and loveliness or beauty, anything excellent or praiseworthy as these generic or neutral virtues, as if they can exist apart from God. They can't. As if by focusing our attentions on beauty divorced from him, divorced from God, can fix anything. It can't. Remember, the context that Paul is saying these things from is one of hard suffering and persecution. Looking at cat pictures on the internet is not going to fix that. If you are struggling with depression or anger or fear, the power of positive thinking will only take you so far. Paul is encouraging his readers, he's encouraging us to something far greater than just positive thinking. He's asking us to partner with the work of the Holy Spirit as he transforms our minds. So to what exactly might, be, might he be referring when he says all these things? What exactly should we be thinking about? Now, I don't know that I can answer that question for you. And if Paul could have been clear, I believe he would have been. But like I said at the beginning, each of us is unique, a one-of-a-kind combination of experiences, loves, abilities, dreams. Each of us has different eyes to see and different ears to hear what these things might be. The late Mary Oliver, an American poet, wrote in one of her poems that to pay attention is our endless and proper work. And in her last book of essays, she follows this thought up by saying that attention is the beginning of devotion. She's warning us against looking without noticing. In this case, we might hear the warning as looking at the shape of the world, looking at the shape of our lives, and not noticing the truth and justice and beauty of God's work in us and among us. 
to marry her words with Paul, we must not look to the world around us. Sorry, we, we must look to the world around us and look within ourselves and see where God revealed in Christ is to be found. God alone is the source of all truth, honor, justice, purity, and loveliness. And so just as Paul can look at his imprisonment and see something beautiful, an opportunity for evangelism, I can look at my wife and see our life together as this beautiful opportunity to extend grace and have grace extended to me. I can think on my life in Kelowna and see where God's justice needs to be made manifest. I can revision my own personal struggles with mental illness and depression and see the truth that none of us can do this thing called life on our own. I can see God's beautiful serendipity in my now being equipped to empathize and understand those who likewise have struggled with such things. Things that were meant to harm me, things that were meant to harm you, can now be baptized by God's work accomplished in Christ, and truth and honor and righteousness and purity and loveliness can emerge. And as we discover these things, as we think on them, we can rejoice. And more than that, they shape our practice. They shape how we live in the world. Now, this is no easy task. And the church has all sorts of different habits and practices and disciplines that you can do. There's uh, a practice of prayer you can engage in at the end of the day where you just look through your day and see, uh, have, have a chance to re-understand things, reinterpret things in light of Christ's truth, because maybe in that moment when you were living that moment or that circumstance, you weren't paying attention, and now you can see where God is at work. Now you can see where God's beauty was emerging in that situation. And then thinking on that, you would move to the next step and say, tomorrow, would my new understanding of the situation impact how I live? The Christian life is not meant to be a passive thing. The Christian life is active, it's urgent, and it's full of life. But easy? No. It takes discipline and habit and practice. We are disciples, after all, a word that shares a common root with discipline. We are not loafers in Christ. Barbara Brown Taylor is an Episcopal priest, and she describes this practice as being a detective of divinity. And I have to give a shout out to Sandy, who pointed that quote out to me. Uh, she mentioned it in one of our Thursday night times where we've been reading scripture together. It's a bit like uh, Deeper, if you've been to one of our Deeper classes before. Um, we've got a link to it in the newsletter every week. If you want to join us this week, we are starting uh, the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy. So you can just click that link on Thursday and join us as we read the Bible together. Now, a detective works. A detective discerns. They pursue. And that's what Paul is asking us to do throughout the course of our lives. Detect whatever is true, whatever is noble. Discern whatever is right, whatever is 
pure. Pursue whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, not only in the world, but in your own life. And because of the work of Christ, things that we thought were ugly before can be baptized and we can find beauty there now as well. Like I said, things that were meant to harm us can now become opportunities of grace and transformation as well. This isn't always easy work to discern and pursue those things, to think on those things. Often the everydayness of our lives leads to distraction rather than attention to where and how we might discover God's truth in our lives. But that lack of attention, that unwillingness to think on all these things is crippling to our walk with God. We're not called to be passive. We're called to be active. And thankfully, this is not an individual practice. Paul encourages his readers to look to him in verse 9 as an example. In chapter 3, in verse 17, he encourages them to look, uh, to, to keep our eyes on those who live in the same way that he did, live as citizens of heaven, being transformed ever more into the likeness of Christ. So who are those people? Who are those people in our church? Who are those people in your life? Maybe you've got people like this in your family. Do you have people that you are looking to? More than that, do you have people that you are talking to? Or has your faith been a quiet thing, something that is not shared? Because if we're to discern what is truly excellent in the eyes of God as opposed to what merely appears excellent according to our culture, we have to be in conversation with one another and sharing our lives with one another. Again, when God came to save us, he came to save us for the church. He came to make a people for his name, not just to save Levi and let Levi go and figure this thing out on his own. No, we're called to be in a community that is being transformed together and that is looking to each other as we wrestle with, as we, as we strive to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as we try to think on the things of Christ and put those things into practice. So this is something that we as a church want to encourage you all to lean into. We want to encourage you to lean into what we're calling triads, forming a group of three or so people who are committed to encouragement, committed to, let's call it broadly, God talk, committed to praying together, to sharing your life together. And doing this doesn't simply lend to our communion with the saints. In verse nine, at the end of our passage, Paul lets us know that this deepens our communion with God himself. The God of peace will be with us, he says, when we do this. And it's good here, near the end of Paul's letter, to remember what he says at the beginning. He is confident that he who began a good work in us will carry it to completion. Taking on the challenge of coming together with other believers, discerning and thinking on whatever is true and just and excellent, and then wrestling with how we see that work itself out in our practice, how we talk and act in the world, this is what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is how we mature as believers in Christ Jesus. And we can be confident, we can have a confident expectation that what Christ has begun in us will work itself out to its completion. 
We're not groping blindly in the dark here, kind of fingers crossed, hoping this works. When we talk about hope in the New Testament, it's not fingers crossed. A better understanding would be a confident expectation. And so Paul says, live this out. Live your life in this way. Now, in a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion together. And if you're going to be doing communion as a hub or a life group, I'll give you a little heads up. We're going to pray in just a second, and the question for the week is going to go up. Once that question pops up, you can just pause the video and engage with communion on your own. But if you're uh, joining us as a family and want to join uh, everyone else on the live stream in communion, you can just let that video keep on playing. But we're going to use the occasion of eating bread and drinking juice, two otherwise mundane activities, and we're going to use that activity to think on the truth of the incarnation. Again, ordinary things, bread and cup, can be transformed when we recognize the, the thumbprint of God's work in Christ there. So we're going to think on the incarnation of God revealed in Christ and the beauty of our salvation. And in that communion, we're going to be mutually encouraged and challenged to live out our communion with Christ in the day-to-day -day week. We're going to take the elements into our bodies, reminding ourselves that we are one with Christ and that his spirit resides in each one of us. But before we do that, let's pray through Philippians 4, 8 to 9 together. Heavenly Father, as we begin this week, would we be receptive to the work of your Holy Spirit in us? Would we pay attention to where you are at work in our lives and the lives of others? Would you equip us to be detectives of divinity, discerning and thinking on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. Would you open our eyes to these things as they occur in the rhythms of our everyday lives? Would you baptize our understanding and give us the eyes to see and ears to hear where you are at work? Would we do this together as a body of believers? And would our attention lead us to devotion, to worship you, to offering our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. And would you make us a people that speak the truth, that live lives above reproach, that do justice and pursue holiness and value and create beauty. And in our pursuit of discerning and thinking on and doing these things, would you give us the courage, Heavenly Father, to invite others in to share our life in you together as your church. Amen. Now, kids, and those of you who are young at heart, I hope you've got your drawings all done. Uh, we love seeing the stuff that you do, so I hope that you can send some of it our way, snap a picture, send us an email. But parents, I want you to take this opportunity as well to think through with your kids where God can be delighted in, in that truth, where they can wrestle with that. What might you begin to think about in your life or outside of it that will draw you to live in and live out of your relationship with Jesus? 
I want you to think about, with your kids and on your own, I want you to think, what is true and just and beautiful? And don't just think that. Talk about it with fellow believers and then think on how you live that out as well. Again, this isn't a one-week exercise. This is something that we're going to be doing for the whole of our lives. If anything, uh, might this sermon remind you of the call that has always been there on us. Whatever things you might think on and pursue this week here is a truth that we are going to think on and do together right now. By taking in the bread and the cup, we remind ourselves that we have made, been made one with Christ, drawn into his love and life. Now, we have a liturgy that we're going to follow as we do this. We do this all the time. I'm going to speak, and you're invited to respond by reading the words on the screen. All right? Let's begin. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Listen, the Lord who fed the thousands on the hillside who fed the twelve in the upper room, listen. He stands at the door and knocks. If we hear his voice and open the door, he will come in and eat with us. Jesus invites all his disciples to feast at his table, all who are members of God's covenant family living in obedience to God and with integrity towards their spiritual brothers and sisters. Gather to celebrate their communion with Christ and each other. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Forgive our sins, our pride and self-sufficiency, our bitterness and division. Help us to examine ourselves and give us the grace to repent. We will leave the gifts of our worship at the altar until we have made right that which needs mending, with you or in the church. And then, O oh Lord, your kindness and forgiveness will feed our very souls. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'll give you a moment to pass the bread around and then we can speak together. Let's read. Father, we bless you for the bread, for this sign of Jesus' body and his life of compassion and his example of humble service. This loaf unites us in the one body and strengthens us for ministry. Lord, remember your body and deliver us from evil. Church family, let's eat together. Now, in the same way, Jesus took the cup, blessed it, and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. Again, I'll give you a moment to make sure that everyone has some juice before we continue. All right, let's read this together. Father, we bless you for the cup, for the sign of Jesus' shed blood, for his death on the cross and his sacrifice for sin. This cup welcomes us into a covenant of forgiveness and promises us the riches of eternal life. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, and we have been brought over from death into life. Church family, let's drink together. And now as we close this morning, let's say this last part together. As often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come, Lord Jesus.